friends, this is Josh Blair, and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer for the message you hear today is that it will inspire you and encourage you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, please check us out at CC Madera, both on Facebook and Instagram, and you can check out our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be speaking out of Isaiah 53. It was a part of our reading for this this last week, part of our, our reading plan as we're, as we're moving through the Bible in a year. And there's so many profound things um, in the book of Isaiah. I thought about preaching out of chapter 40 when he says that he's going to bring the mountains flat and then he's going to raise up the valleys. I thought, wow, God is going to be removing obstacles. I thought about preaching that, but then um, as I got to Isaiah 53, I thought, wow, this is profound. Where, where he begins to talk about 500 plus years before the birth of Jesus, he sees prophetically about who Jesus is going to be and what Jesus is going to do and what Jesus is going to do for us. I thought, man, I can't pass that up. I need to talk about that. Even as we read, I believe it was yesterday, maybe was it today, we read Isaiah 60. I think it was yesterday, and, and, and Jesus, it, it, it's, I remember when Jesus goes over the temple and he says, he talks about he's, he's uh, called me to, pre- to preach uh, freedom to the captain. I thought, man, there's so, much pow- so many powerful scriptures. I want to make sure that you're continuing to read that. Read Isaiah. If you've not read those chapters yet, get back into those chapters and read them. But this morning, I'm going to do some in-depth teaching on chapter 53 because I believe that, that, that God is speaking to us. And he wants to encourage us and remind us what Jesus did for us and uh, what he's desiring to do in us and transform us into. And so we're going to be talking about those things this morning. And as you're, as you're going there, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you or if, you ha- <clears throat> if you're watching on TV and you're able to use another, uh, your smartphone or device uh, to go to the YouVersion Bible app and go and open up Isaiah 53, um, if you're not, you're going to have to jump back and forth. We'll have the verses for you. If you're watching on your phone and you can't go to your Bible on your phone, just hang on with us here. We'll have the verses there for you. But we're going to be reading out of Isaiah 53. And as you're turning there, flipping there, or finding it somewhere, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that reveals your word to us. We ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to fully know and understand what you have for us and in store for us today. Help me, Lord, to teach your word clearly and precisely the way you've given it to me. Help me, Lord, to be an instrument and a channel of your revelation to your people, God, that they would be encouraged and equipped and strengthened to do the work that you've called them to. Father, we love you. We can't do it without you, and we don't want to. We love you, Jesus. Have your way and move in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God is working, and God is moving. Let's read out of chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Now it says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's stop right there. Isaiah starts this chapter with two questions. And he's basically saying, Who can believe what I've just said? And who has seen the way God is going to deliver us? This is what he, this is paraphrasing those two questions. Who has believed what has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is symbolic of God's strength, of God's provision, of God's deliverance. And Isaiah is saying, who can understand what I've just revealed? Now, to understand why he's asking this question, then we have to look back at chapter 53, starting in, or 52, and starting in verse 13, where he begins to say that God is going to send to us, he's talking to the people of Israel at that time, and basically to the nations, he's, God's going to send us a deliverer, a savior, 
And in chapter, in, in chapter 52, starting in verse 13, he says this, that he's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be prosperous and wise. And then he begins to say this, that this deliverer, this savior is going to be marred and deformed beyond description, uh, beyond, beyond recognition. He's going to be beaten so much he's not even going to look like a human. He's going to be uh, so marred in his physical body that they won't even tell that he's a child of, of a human person. And, he's, and he says, but in this revelation and this scarring and this marring of this Savior, the kings and the nations of the world will look and see and understand who the true king is. That's what he says in chapter 52, starting in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And then after he says this, then he says, who can believe this? Who can actually see that God is going to deliver us this way? And he asks those questions. Because he's wanting to say, do you believe that God will, would send us a deliverer who would deliver us through suffering? He's going to send us a deliverer and a savior who's going to be beaten so badly that we can't even recognize him. But the nations of the world and the kings and the queens of those nations will recognize and understand who the true king is. So he asked this question. Will you believe? Because they were looking for a military uh, leader, a deliverer. They were looking for one like the others, like King David, who would come in and establish an earthly kingdom and push out all those uh, other uh, nations around them. And he was saying, this is not how God's going to deliver us. He's actually going to send us one who is high and lifted up and exalted and who is wise and prosperous, but he's going to be beaten for us. Who can, who can understand it? And then in verse 2, he begins to describe who this deliverer will be. He begins to, so this is what I want to do. I'm going to, just as we read these verses, I'm just going to jot down a few things. And, and, uh, and we're going to highlight some of this stuff together. So first he describes this deliverer. He says, he grew up before him like a young plant. He, meaning the deliverer, would grow up before him who is God, who he's talking about, like a young plant. And so uh, a young plant, like a ten, another verse translates as, as a tender plant or a, a, a um, a small, like insignificant thing that's growing up. So he's going to grow up weak, small, insignificant, like a tender plant, not like a mighty tree. He's not going to come out from this uh, prosperous and wealthy family. He's not going to be well-known. He's not going to walk in privilege. He's not going to have all of these things. He's not going to show up on the scene like a mighty cedar. He's going to grow up before God as a, as a young plant. And he says, then, like a root out of dry ground, so out of a dry place, this, this Savior, this, uh, this Deliverer is going to come. And it says that he's not going to have any majesty, and, and there's, there's not going to be any beauty about him. So there's no beauty. This Deliverer, this Savior that God is going to send us is not going to be strong, He's going to look weak and insignificant, and he's going to come out of a dry place. And certainly as we look at Jesus, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men as he grew up. He wasn't just born knowing everything. He had to grow in these things like a young tender plant. He had to, he had to grow up. 
And so Isaiah, seeing 500 plus years before Jesus shows up on the scene, this Savior, this Messiah, is not going to just float down from heaven and deliver us, but he's going to grow in stature. He's going to be vulnerable like a young plant, like a young plant. Uh, those of you who are farmers and, and you know, if you, if you plant the, the, the uh, alfalfa or the, the almond trees before they actually grow into trees, they're just little sprouts. You can grab them up and pull them up by the roots and, I mean, it's, you can do that. They're, they're vulnerable. And Jesus, he's saying Jesus is going to be like that. He's going to be vulnerable. He's going to have to grow up. And he's going to look very insignificant uh, as a child and even as he grows. He, he's going to become weak. The Savior who's going to deliver us is actually going to show up on the scene weak. And we know that Jesus does that when he's born in Bethlehem, in a manger, not a dollar to his name. Right? He, he, he is weak and he seems insignificant. And then I love that he says he's a root out of dry ground. Jesus grew up in Galilee. Like, if you know anything about Galilee, politically, uh, spiritually, even regionally, it was a weak place. It was a dry place. It was dominated by Roman rule. It, people didn't believe anything that could, could good, good could come out of Nazareth or, or Galilee in those regions. And it was certainly a dry place. And Jesus is a root out of that dry place. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon that says, Do not say it is useless to preach in certain areas. It's useless to preach. We have, a mission, we have missionaries that we're supporting around the world. We have a... I'm thinking of Shane and Naomi who are down in um, Oaxaca right now. Some people might say it's pointless to send uh, you into those mountain regions. And like, what would be the purpose? What's the fruit there? It's dry. Well, Jesus is a root out of a dry place, which means that God can bring life out of dry things. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you feel like you're in a dry place, but that is a place where God can do miraculous stuff in you because Jesus was the root that grew out of dry ground. And this, this quote of, of Charles Spurgeon says, if you think of dry places as a, as a place where God can do the miraculous, just like if it's a super dark place, the light shines brightest in the darkest of places. And God is, being re is revealing to us through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus grew out of a dry place because God can bring life out of dry places. And he tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him And no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty. Now, I just want to say this. Sometimes I used to say that this meant Jesus was ugly. That doesn't mean that Jesus was ugly, right? Because <laughs> some of us were like, you can't even picture that. But Jesus didn't have the privilege of good looks. Like, he wasn't just some people, they were like, you know, people are look so good looking that you're just drawn to them. You're just like, man, they're attractive. I want to be around. Like my wife, when I saw her, I was like, hello. She'd been blessed with the privilege of good looks, you know what I mean? But Jesus didn't have that. Jesus didn't have, some, some people, they have good looks and they have charisma, and auto, automatically people just want to listen to them and be, are drawn to them because of that. But Jesus didn't have that. He had nothing that would draw us, no beauty, no majesty, that would want people to be drawn to him. There was no attractiveness. What I find interesting, when, we, when I think about this, that Jesus had no beauty that, that people would be drawn, just an outward expression of who he was, makes me think about how sometimes we think that we have to dress up the gospel. We think that we have to make the gospel more attractive to people to get them to come in. We've got to have big things. We've got to have lights and, and, and entertainment and events and all of these things to try to get people. We've got to make it attractive for them. And I think sometimes I think that when, when we're doing that, we're, we're actually drawing a veil across Jesus' face because Jesus wasn't attractive. The only thing that draws people to Jesus is the Holy Spirit.
And so sometimes we think that we gotta, we got to make things look good. Sometimes we got to attach ourselves to celebrities and attach ourselves to these things that are bigger than us to, as, as a way to try to draw more people. And we don't see that in Scripture. In fact, Jesus didn't have anything of beauty, of, of majesty that drew people to him. He had the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, in, uh, living and walking among us. He was, he was disadvantaged in the fact that he wasn't just popping with good looks like some of you. Jesus didn't have that, but he, was, he still was working and moving. And in verse 3, it says he was despised and rejected. I'm just going to write these things down. Jesus was despised. Am I spelling that right? Yes. Despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected by men, and I'll also put in women, talking about humanity. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word grief can also be translated with sickness. He was, he was acquainted with sickness. A man of sorrows. He wasn't just sorrowful at moments. He was a man of sorrows. Why was he sorrowful? Because he saw the state of the people that were around him. He saw the brokenness of hum humanity. He saw the bondage of sin that people were in. And he was brokenhearted for the people. He was a man of sorrows. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus 500 plus years before Jesus shows up. And it says, And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, there was nothing outwardly beautiful about Jesus. Uh, he didn't have this certain charisma that people are drawn to necessarily. And it reminds me that sometimes, as people, we can put a lot more value on beauty and charisma and God does not value those things as much as we do. And sometimes we can reject a movement of God or a person of God or a, a word of God because it doesn't look pretty enough and it's not uh, charismatic enough. And we want to be with people who look good and sound good. And we want to be with those who pump us up and make us feel alive. And sometimes God's like, I'm not even with them. I'm not even in that. And we esteem those things higher than God actually does. And we can actually miss a move of God because we're looking for beauty and charisma when God is just looking for someone who's willing. And we see this in Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so because they didn't see those things in Jesus, they despised him, and they didn't, they didn't count him for nothing. So we, we esteem you not, which is a, a beautiful way of saying, uh, it's a nice way of saying, uh, we think you're trash. Like, we don't, we, I don't, I mean, if we talked like that today, we'd be like, oh, I don't esteem that guy. You know, if we had a, a, there's somebody we don't like or a neighbor or whatever, like, man, I don't esteem him. We don't, we don't talk like that. We say, man, I don't care about that guy. That guy's a fool. I don't care. That's how they treated Jesus. Like, he, he was nothing. And in verse, starting in verse 4, then Isaiah begins to talk about this Savior, about this Redeemer, what he would do. He says, surely he would, he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. I'm going to put down here, 
he bore and he carried. I'm going to just say that he became burdened with our stuff. He carried, he bore, he put it on himself. This is what he's saying. The Savior, the Redeemer who's going to be marred, who we can't even recognize because of what he's about to go through, the suffering he's going to, he's going to go through, it's, he's going to be carrying our stuff. The stuff that we were carrying, he's going to be putting on himself. See, Isaiah didn't really know how it was going to look. He didn't know what it was going to look like because the cross and crucifixion didn't exist at that point when Isaiah was writing. But he knew that the Messiah, the Savior, was going to take our pain upon himself somehow. Okay, that he was going to make our grief, our sorrow, his own. And it's like as if he saw the Messiah being loaded down with the burden of our sin, of the burden of our transgression. That's as if like a heavy backpack. You know, I remember when I was in school and we didn't have lockers. Like, for some reason, I was in that year where they shut down lockers because they, I don't know, kids were doing weird stuff. Anybody else? We're in school and we had, like, the, the older upperclassmen had lockers and the freshmen, we didn't. And, and then when we got upperclassmen, they're like, forget it, you're not having lockers anyway. Like, they took them all out during those, like, early 2000s. And, and all of a sudden, we had to carry all of our books in our backpack, like, the biology book and the chemistry and math and all these different things. Our backpack were loaded and people were concerned that kids were going to have back problems because of all the books we had to carry. And I could see people walking around carrying these heavy burdens. And Isaiah is saying, he's going to come, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to remove our burdens from us. Some of you are carrying heavy burdens this morning that Jesus has actually died for to carry and lift off of you. The thing is, you've got to hand them over to him. You've got to take the backpack off. So that he can carry it for you. Isaiah said the Messiah is going to carry our burdens. He's going to carry our pain and our grief and our sorrow. He wants to do that for us today. Yet he says we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Afflicted. We esteemed him as stricken. See, people can look at Jesus and the way he died and think like how God wasn't with him. That's what the Pharisees said as Jesus was dying on the cross, if God is with you, why don't you take yourself off the cross? They could see that he was stricken, that he was afflicted, that he was being punished, and they thought the punishment is because of what you've done, right? If, you know, oh, uh, physician or healer, heal thyself. Like, you heal yourself. You, you can do it. Remove yourself off the cross if you are the Son of God. And they thought, no, you can't do it because you're the cause of your own pain. And Isaiah says, you were going to think that as Jesus is being brutally whipped and beaten and hung on this cross, that it's his fault. But then he tells them why Jesus was afflicted, why he suffered for us. And he begins to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He says it's not because he did something wrong. It's not because of his sin or his error. It's because of ours. It's because of our transgression, our sin that drove him to the cross. It's our wrongdoing that caused him to be beaten. He was stricken. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. But it was because of us, because of our sin. Literally, he says that when he was wounded 
for our transgressions. That, wound, that word wounded is translated, he was pierced through for our sin. And again, the crucifixion did not exist at this point. So for Isaiah to see this one who's going to be beaten beyond recognition for us, he's going to suffer so much for us because of our own stuff, they're going to pierce him. They're going to pierce his body for us. And through his piercing that we're going to receive forgiveness, he begins to tell them. He's wounded because of our sin. The Holy, the holy One was pierced. He would be pierced for us. He would be broken for us. And he says, by his stripes, we are healed. I want to talk a little bit about this, if you give me a moment. By his stripes, we are healed. Here the prophet Isaiah is speaking centuries before the Messiah would come, saying that he's going to be beaten for us. He was going to have many stripes upon his back. Mark 15, 15 says that Jesus was beaten and he had stripes on his back. By his stripes, we are healed. He even announces that provision for healing would be found in the suffering of Jesus so that we could be healed in our bodies. Now, there is debate. There's been theological debate about what kind of healing Isaiah is talking about here. Is he talking about spiritual healing or physical healing? And if we look at this passage of Scripture and how it's applied in the New Testament, we would say that it's talking about both. Because in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, it appears that, that Matthew's talking about a, a physical healing there. That by the stripes of Jesus, we would have physical healing. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it looks like that he's talking about spiritual healing. So it's not either or. It's not talking about by his, spirit, by, his, by his stripes on his body, we would find spiritual healing, which we do have. We have spiritual healing in us. But he's also talking about by the stripes upon his body, we have physical healing as well. So whatever kind of healing you need, spiritual or physical, there's healing in the stripes of Jesus today. Both physical and spiritual. But I do want to point this out right now. Because some have taken this to mean that every believer has the right or has the promise of perfect health right now. There are some who even teach this. That you should have perfect health right now. And they look at Isaiah uh, uh, 53 and the, the use of the language of the past tense. By his stripes we are healed. And they think, see, we should be living in perfect health and perfect healing right now. And if there's a lack of health, it's simply because you've not taken a hold of the promise and claimed it by faith. It's this name it and claim it kind of faith. If you want healing, you just got to believe for it. And if you, don't, if you don't have it, you don't believe good enough. You don't believe hard enough. And it's this kind of thinking this, that stresses the past tense of his stripes. We are healed. The idea that since it's past tense, that perfect health is God's promise and provision to every Christian right now in this moment. That even as the believer has the promise of perfect forgiveness and perfect salvation in this moment, we should also have perfect health. See, the problem with this view is, though, that not only does it contradict everything that we saw of the saints in the early church, those disciples who were beaten and killed and sick and all of these other things that they went through, and even as you go through the church history of all these things that people who followed Jesus and all the ailments they went through and death and everything else, 
not only does it reject that, the fact is it misunderstands the verb tense when it talks about salvation and healing. See, we can say without reservation that perfect and total complete healing is God's promise for every, every believer in Christ Jesus paid by his stripes on the cross and his work for us. But we can also say that it's not promised for every believer right now, just as the totality of our salvation is not promised right now. Let me explain this. Why? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have been saved. Right? But in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, it says that we are being saved. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that we will be saved. So there is a, a past, present, and future tense of salvation. So if you've accepted Jesus, you are saved, and you are in the process of being saved. We call it sanctification. And one day, Jesus will return, and he will save us. Yes? So in the same way that progression of salvation is experienced in us, we are saved are being saved and will be saved, we b also believe that for healing. We are healed, we are being healed, and one day we will be healed. But if you don't have healing right now in your body, it doesn't mean that you lack faith, that there's something wrong with you, that you're disconnected from your Savior. No, there's a pro progression. We understand ultimate healing will come through res resurrection. When Jesus comes back, it says the dead will rise in Christ and be with him first, and then we will meet him in the air. That is the ultimate healing that we will receive in the body of Christ. And so we need to understand what his healing looks like for us today. It is not, what we should not do is claim that we're healed even though we have symptoms of, uh, in our body and believe like if I, just, if I just not confess that sickness, I won't have it. As if we say like if I say I have some type of disease, then I'm claiming it, and I don't want that, right? That seems, that's foolishness. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what God's saying we should do. We should not ignore the symptoms in our bodies and say, I'm just going to believe through it, and it doesn't exist. No, if you have sickness, if you've got cancer, get treatment. If you've got other things going on in your body, seek medical help, Right? But what we should do as believers is fully believe with faith and confidence and trust that our God can heal us and he desires to heal us and ask him for the miraculous gift of his healing touch upon our bodies and believe, God, would you have mercy and grace on me and allow me to experience your healing now. But if it doesn't happen, you also have to remember that ultimate healing comes when we are with him. So any other healing that we have in this body is just patchwork. It's just patchwork on our bodies until one day we will be resurrected and have our resurrected bodies in heaven. But we ask him now, would you patch me up in these areas? I need some patchwork. I'm leaking, right? Think of a roof. I need some patchwork, but ultimately my healing comes when I'm with him. And so we need to be people who understand what it means to stand on the promise. By his stripes we are healed. We believe that God can heal us, desires to heal us, but if we're not experiencing healing right now, we stand in belief, but it's not based on your faith, it's based on his stripes. It was by his stripes that we're healed. Not by your faith, not by your willingness to believe, not by your, your denial of what's going on in your body that you're healed. No, by his stripes. And so we stand on him. Hopefully I made that clear. I want you to understand what Jesus has done for you. So we boldly trust God. We trust his goodness. We trust his mercy to grant the gifts of healing now. 
even before ultimate healing and resurrection. In verse 7, it says that he was oppressed and afflicted. Oppressed and afflicted. And yet he did not open up his mouth. He was silent. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb that was before the shearer, just silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. We know that Jesus didn't defend himself before Pilate when Pilate asked him, are you guilty of these things? He didn't say a word. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, Jesus became cut off. Hang with me, I'm going somewhere. This is the first indication, actually, that Isaiah says that the Savior, the Messiah who is to come, will actually die. This is what he's saying. He's cut off from the land of the living. It's a, uh, it was a more poetic way of saying he would die. Be cut off from the land of the living, stricken from the transgression, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and though there was no deceit in his mouth. Basically saying he he was sinless, he was guiltless, and yet he died the death of one who was a transgressor. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see, he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah is saying here, it is God's will that Christ should suffer and die, not because God takes pleasure in that, but because he understood the fruit that would come from it. He understood what would happen because the people would be, we, the people, would be reconciled to him through the suffering of his son, Jesus. And here is the beginning of the first clue that we see of resurrection. Some people say resurrection is not seen in the Bible. It's seen in the Old, in the Old Testament before, before the New Testament. We see it in Isaiah. He said he's going to die, he's going to be cut off from the land of the living, and yet he's going to prosper and he's going to see the offspring. He's saying that he's going to die, but he's going to come back to life. He's 500 years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. He's saying this Messiah, Savior, who's going to be beaten for us, who's going to suffer for us, who's going to bear our iniquities and our transgressions upon himself, and by his stripes we're going to receive healing, and by his wounds we will be healed. Uh, not only is he going to die for us, but he's going to rise for us. You should be saying amen right now. Online, you should be shouting me down. Because he's saying, this one who is out of his anguish, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you and I. By his suffering, he's going to make us righteous. And he shall, he shall bear our, our iniquities. From his suffering, we'll be called righteous. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and I shall divide the spoil with the strong. The word strong there can also be translated numerous. He's going to divide his portion amongst us. That's what Paul writes about, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to be a part of his family. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus died between two criminals. And they thought he's a criminal just like these guys. And yet he says he makes intercession for the transgressors. We see that as Jesus is on the cross and one says, I believe you're the son of God. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's interceding for the transgressor as he's on the cross and he intercedes for us even in our sin. Even as we rebelled against him and rejected him, God cries out. Jesus at the right hand of the Father intercedes. See, this is us this morning. Here's my point that I want to highlight. Jesus paid the price for our sin through his suffering. Jesus secured our healing by the stripes he bore in his body, both spiritual and physical. Now and in the future, Jesus was oppressed and rejected so that we could be free and accepted. He was cut off so we could be brought in. He went through anguish so that we could become righteous. This is a little note that I want you to follow. This is what Jesus did for us. Jesus came, the King of Kings, he became a servant. Our healer, he became wounded for us. The reconciler, the one who came to reconcile God's people to himself, was rejected. Our deliverer, the one who would set us free, he became oppressed. He's the giver of joy, and yet we knew him as a man of sorrows. He was the strong one, and he stepped into flesh and became weak. He's our living water, and yet he was born in dry ground. He's the majestic one, and yet we looked at him as if no beauty. He's the worthy one, and yet we despised him. He's the holy one, and yet he was broken. Wholeness, holy means that God needed nothing. He was complete in himself, and yet he was broken. His body was pierced. See, he's the free one, and yet he was bound up. He bore our burdens, and he was, see, we talk about trinity, triune, it means three in one, three together, unified, and yet it says that he was cut off. Jesus separated from God the Father. When he's on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of creation and all of everything before time and space even existed, the Godhead was separated at the cross. He was cut off. And this is what Jesus did. He came to flip the script. He did what we could not do. He took our place so that he could trade places with us. Not only did he go to the cross to purify us and cleanse us of our sin and give us his righteousness, he went to the cross to flip the script. Because sin had marred us and broken us and tore us down, so Jesus came and became marred and broken so that we could be whole. So if you would look at this board again, he flipped it on us so that we as servants, undeserving, could become now kings and queens and priests in his kingdom. See, we were wounded by sin, and he came to bring us healing. 
We are rejected and lost without him, and yet he came to reconcile us to the Father. We were oppressed and bound up, and he came and, and delivered us. We are bound in our sorrows, and yet he came to give us joy. We are walking in our weakness, and he said, I came to make you strong. We are walking in dry places. We are dry in our own hearts, but he says, I am the living water. Who, those who drink from me will thirst no more. We have no beauty to us, and he says, I've come to make you majestic. We are despised. We should, there, there's nothing in us that would draw the Lord to us. Why should he love us? And yet he says, I call you worthy. We are broken. He says, I've come to make you whole. We are burdened, and yet, he says, I'm here to make you free. And we've been cut off from God. Sin separated us from God, and yet, he says, I've come to unite you with me again. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the one who's come to love us, to call us, to pour out his spirit on us. This is the Jesus who loves you. Here's what I want you to hear. He became what he was not. So that we could become what we are not. He came and became what, what he was not. Like, why should the king serve? Why would he be wounded? Why would he be rejected and oppressed, a man of sorrows and walk in weakness, born into dry places with no beauty and be despised and broken and burdened and cut off so that we could be kings and queens and healed and reconciled and delivered and fill, filled with joy and strong and with living water, being filled with majesty and declared that we are worthy and holy and set free and united with him. He came and became what he was not so that we could become what we are not. Everything that we need in him today. He comes and he clothes us with righteousness. He shares his inheritance with us. And he even intercedes with us now. This is the God that we serve. As we come to a close this morning, I want to just remind you about the Jesus that we serve. This is the God that we serve. A God who is selfless, who is willing to pay it all for us. A God who laid down his life for us so that we could be whole. Jesus loves you. Jesus paid it all for you. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to be drawn close to him. So whatever you're going with through today or struggling with or whatever trial or temptation or issue that you might be facing, Jesus has faced it and overcome it. Jesus has faced it and overcome it. Jesus knows what it means to be wounded and afflicted. Jesus knows what it means to be rejected and oppressed. Jesus knows what it means to be filled with sorrow and feel weak. Jesus knows what it means to be in a dry place. Jesus knows what it means to have no beauty or no worth. Jesus knows what it means to be despised and broken and burdened. Jesus knows what it means to feel cut off and separated. And yet he came and he bore those things on, his, on, on himself for you. So that you wouldn't feel alone in that place. And so that you would come out of that place in the name of Jesus. So right now, allow the Spirit of God to minister to you and touch you. Those of you who are watching online right now and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I want you to know the goodness of our God. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I want to pray a prayer of salvation for those of you who are watching. Would you repeat this prayer after me? Say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for taking my place, for knowing me, for bearing my guilt and my shame, for setting me free. Please forgive me. I accept your sacrifice. I accept your forgiveness. Help me to follow you and to trust you every day of my life. for listening to this message to hear more messages like this one be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel to hear past episodes if you like what you're hearing be sure to rate it and share it with your friends it helps us out a lot if you're interested in supporting